Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. Good morning, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, your Saturday morning fix of art, politics, news and trash from a feminist perspective. My name's Katie Winton. And I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. Agenda on FBI Radio is broadcast on Gadigal land and we would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the original custodians of the land we broadcast on and pay our respects to their elders. We also acknowledge the significance of Redfern as a place of strength, resistance, knowledge sharing and storytelling for many communities and we'd like to honour that history. Coming up on the show today, we'll be talking to writer, photographer, musician, pun aficionado, podcaster and occasional filmmaker Liz Duck-Chong. I saw Liz speak on a panel at the Opera House a few weeks ago about how to disarm sexism in the arts following the Me Too movement. So I'm pretty excited to chat to Liz today. Definitely stick around for that conversation in about 30 minutes. Izzy, anything newsworthy this week? There is. <laughs> Thanks for asking. <laughs> no problems. Um, in what is hoping to look like the beginning of the end for new HIV transmissions in Australia, pro-exposure prophylactics, which is you might know as PrEP, will be listed on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme from the 1st of April this year. And the announcement means that the government, uh, so that they're subsidising $180 million of for PrEP. And it's an antiretroviral medication taken by HIV negative people to prevent infection. So it's a really amazing drug and it's going to be available for only thirty nine fifty, which is like kind of the same as, I don't know, contraceptive pill for example, um, per month. So per month, sorry, yeah, thirty nine. So it's about forty dollars a month, which is really exciting. So though it definitely isn't the end of HIV stigma and discrimination, there's obviously a lot of work that needs to be done around that. It does provide an alternative to people having to go through really invasive clinical trials or importing the expensive drug privately, which is what people have been doing. Yeah, which is exciting news. Mm. Uh, Also in the United States, after much speculation, actress Cynthia Nixon has officially announced that she will challenge Governor Andrew Cuomo in the Democratic primary election. You probably know Cynthia Nixon from being a total Miranda on Sex and the City. (laughs) Well, now she's throwing her hat in, in the ring, which a few years ago might have seemed a bit weird, but for all we know, Oprah might be president soon. So We live in strange times, so it's like totally not as weird as it might once have been I think yeah so I guess our question is what does that mean for women for minorities and for queer communities should we be excited about a queer female person in power or should we be alarmed that people in positions of significant power have probably much more impressive IMVD profiles than policy platforms let us know what you think (laughs) I mean it's not it's not a new thing per se I mean I was kind of thinking like oh this is wild times but it's like not a new thing for actors to venture into politics and um, they've done that in the past and they've traded on their well-known roles to broker goodwill with the public so we saw it with like Ronald Reagan saw it with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Fred Thompson um and Trump, of course, that's probably why people yeah. are a little bit like apprehensive about it. But there really aren't very many examples of female actors, um, especially ones so strongly associated with successful movie or TV shows running for office. So on the one hand, it's old <laughs> news, but on the other hand, it, I mean, I can understand why people are excited about the idea of a yeah, I got queer to thinking. Woman. Yeah, exactly. is this a win for feminism? <laughs> uh, maybe it's. I mean, maybe it's also like Britney Spears turned artist. You know, maybe it's a really smart uh, mm. career move. Yeah, Who I mean, say? do you have you seen her gubernatorial <laughs> like whatever her hype video? It's like fully out of Sex and the City. Like she's there's she's not trying to define herself away from Miranda Hobbs. She's like, but I think Miranda's character is very you know like. She's the one that I yeah, would most trust. Yeah, but it's trust. so tacky. <laughs> it's like she's like walking down, like doing a walk and talk like she did on Sex and the City. It's like, Jesus, come on. <laughs> Celebrities the- as politicians, yes or no? Text us, <laughs> 0409 um, Another thing that happened this week was that two of my favourite artists uh, who are a collective called Soda Jerk had their philanthropic funding withdrawn from their latest work, which is a political satire film called Terra Nullius, but Terra spelt T-E-R-R-O-R. Soda Jerk's work is amazing. They often use kind of archival film footage and mash it up to create these new kind of narratives. So Dan and Dominique Angeloro of Soda Jerk described 
this particular film as a political revenge fable which offers an unwriting of Australian national mythology and it's uh, described on their website as a world in which minorities and animals conspire and not so nice white guys finish last where misogynistic remarks are met with the sharp beak of a bird or the jaws of a crocodile and girl gangs rule the highways. Within this fable, Skippy School's sunny on intersectional feminism, a house is haunted by the spectre of queer Australia, the mystery of hanging rock is resolved and a bicentennial celebration is ravaged by flesh-eating sheep. It sounds so... Amazing. So good. The (laughs) 55-minute film was awarded a $100,000 grant by the Ian Potter Moving Image Commission in 2016. So the commission is a 10-year initiative established by the Ian Potter Foundation for new projects by mid-career Australian artists. Sodashek published a post last Sunday alleging the foundation had pulled the support from the work they commissioned because it's not in line with their conservative political values. Yeah, it's rare that funding is pulled because of the content of a work. So So weird, right? Yeah. I feel like it looks bad for them as well. Like It's such a big power move to do something like that for a film that seems really good. Yeah, it's 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 pretty big. Um, and I, I kind of think that it not only demonstrates... I got to thinking. I, yeah. <laughs> I, got, to, I got to thinking. Is it, all art <laughs> sponsored by... <laughs> by conservative people? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's true, because it not only shows how conservative the Ian Potter Cultural Trust is, but on a broader scale, it's pretty scary to think about where philanthropic support comes from in the arts. Mm. Is it often at the whim of people who aren't particularly interested in promoting intersectional feminism? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a kind of structural problem, and I think those philanthropic donors are like notionally interested in those things but like with so much things in like media and art it's to a point and yeah then it's absolutely like, no, 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 no no you can be intersectional but like only as it up to this point and then yeah, yeah or only it when it's to make me you. uncomfortable that's like and I think that was yeah. one of the points that Sojourk made in this um, Guardian article that came out about this funding being pulled they were kind of like well they're interested in you know promoting this kind of political satire or being political until mm. it's too much and it's mm. quote un-Australian you know oh like it, that was one of the quotes that Ian Potter Cultural Trust used yeah Jeez. it's un-Australian I thought, we was, I thought we stopped saying that <laughs> yeah. I thought that was over like three years ago but yeah is back. Cool. It's, yeah, here we are in Un-Australia. Uh, so <laughs> we'll chat more about uh, Miranda as <laughs> politician yeah. right after this track, which is taken from New York Collective Allergy Season and Disc Woman's Physically Sick 2 compilation that was released earlier this month on Bandcamp, where 100% of the profits will go to the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. This track is called Passing. It's by a Berlin producer called Mobile Girl. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.
Thoughts that count. Agenda on FBI Radio. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and now it's time for Thoughts That Count, where we ask you what you think on a topic or issue relating to feminism. (laughs) And this week, we're asking whether celebrities should be politicians. Let us know your thoughts. 0409-945-945. I've actually been giving people this number as my personal number. Have you? And writing it on my work documents. So Oh, like accidentally. Like accidentally, because I'm so used to being like, oh, nine, 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 four, five. and I was like giving it to a uh, travel agent the other day and I was like, nope, that's <laughs> That not. is the FBI text that's line. That's the FBI text that's line. That's kind of amazing. Maybe I should just start giving it to people who I don't want to give my number to. Yes. <laughs> text me. That's a, that's a really good idea. Why? Yeah. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> Cynthia Nixon is kind of attempting something rare at the moment for a woman, and she's also attempting it at a time when some Americans may be particularly skittish about celebrity politicians. So in the past, you know, we've seen people like Reagan, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, in Australia, Peter Garrett as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. I also just wrote Schwartz as <laughs> Schwarzenegger as Schwartz, because I didn't know how to spell Schwarzenegger. I got, I got it. I got, uh, I you got it, yeah. Um, well, Cynthia Nixon is throwing her hat in the gubernatorial race against Cuomo, who's, like, from this big dog uh, New York family. So he's, like, I mean, he's not a goodie. The New York train system is super crazy terrible, and I think he's in, like, a little bit, like, he's in pretty hot water for, what's it called? The trains don't run on time, and there's, like, a lot of um, dirty dealings. But... I don't know. I, I find this like incredibly depressing. And, and I think it's depressing because it reminds me a lot of Trump. Like she's trading off her celebrity. And I, I was saying before, like kind of like Trump and like Reagan, they're using roles that they appeared on as celebrities to kind of... Maybe that's just incredibly good business sense. Though. I mean, it does make incredibly good business sense. <laughs> and But if you've ever watched Sex in the City, like part of her shtick is that she, um, in her... Uh, campaign advertisement is her like on a train going back up to Albany and it's like she couldn't even get to Brooklyn on Sex in the City it's like this is not believable she couldn't like cross the Brooklyn Bridge then like it's very unlikely that she would be like down with getting a train upstate but it's so funny she so she's like really um, hyped about making the trains more efficient in New York State and she was on her way to a campaign thing and she was late to it because the trains were delayed. <laughs> and I was like, yes, so poetic. <laughs> but also, it's not like she woke up one morning and decided to run for governor. Like, she has a pretty solid track record. In 2003, mm. she was arrested outside City Hall protesting proposed cuts to public education. And she was also on Bill de Blasio's advisory board to forge public-private partnerships that offered New Yorkers essential services in areas like mental health and immigration. So she's a local candidate running for state office, but she can't claim... Yeah, I guess she can't claim that experience has earned her, like, qualifications to run the country. But she can claim she has a handle on how New York works. Yeah. Also, Bill de Blasio ate a pizza with a knife and fork. So, like, he shouldn't be the mayor of New York because he doesn't even know how to eat a pizza properly. But um, I don't really know why that's relevant. But I just remember, like... After he did that, everyone talked about eating a pizza. They were like, are you going to de Blasio your pizza? Like, if you're going to cut it up into pieces. I thought that was really funny. Um, yeah, I'm, like, not about Cynthia Nixon or anyone. Like, and, and that's not to say that, like, politicians are these, like, super intelligent people. Like, and I think Australian politics is a testament to that. But, yeah, maybe I should, like, take politicians off a pedestal because... Yeah, they're doing not an amazing job. That's not very articulate, but yeah. Anyway, she's like one O short of an egot, which is like super <laughs> cool. So she's got, that means she's got an Emmy, a Grammy. I don't know how she got a Grammy though. Wait, what's egot? Egot is when you get an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar and a Tony. So she's got a Tony, a Grammy and an Emmy, but she doesn't have an Oscar. Ah. But will she have a Megot? <laughs> will she, oh no. A gigot, because she's going to be the governor. <laughs> I just invented a new... <laughs> gigot. What are your you thoughts? You have to be the governor. <laughs> Text us, 0409 945 Does, does 945. Cynthia Nixon deserve a gigot? 
<laughs> You're listening to Agenda. Should anyone have a gig up? Sorry, I'm just going to run with this. <laughs> We'll start a poll, maybe a Facebook poll. Uh, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. Stick around because we're actually going to chat to... Stop it. <laughs> chatting to Liz Juck Chong. Right after this track, this one is also taken from the Physically Sick 2 compilation. All about the Physically Sick 2 compilation. It's just today. a really... It's a good name, yeah, I think. Is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. This one's called uh, Viva from Bearcat.
Hinton and Isabel Hawthorburn. listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. That was Laura Jean with Touchstone. We're joined now by so many slashes in your (laughs) bio, Liz. Uh, Writer, speaker, photographer, transgender activist, uh, pun aficionado, occasional filmmaker. Fingers in a lot of pies. Liz Duck-Chong, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I saw you speak on a panel a few weeks back at the Opera House on how to disarm sexism in the arts, kind of in the wake of the mm. Me Too movement, and each speaker was asked to like prepare a provocation, and I was wondering if you could just like recap for us on what you brought to that panel. Absolutely. I mean, um, what everybody brought to it was really interesting and really different. There was people from kind of all parts of the arts industry, which was really fun. Um, I've kind of always, like, I'm a bit on the outside of the arts. I'm a freelancer. Like, I, um, I'm not part of any, like, organisations. And so I kind of used that time to talk about, like, what spaces we're creating for healing, I guess, and for actually when people have done, like, terrible things, when people have been harmed, how we actually move past that and help everybody to come to a place of resolution. Yeah. 
And were there any, what was the response like? The response was actually amazing. Um, It was a really, really cool space. And um, I think the response to everybody's uh, provocations, all of which were like quite intense, was really, really cool. And I think everybody kind of came to it with a sense of wanting to problem solve, wanting to have the difficult discussions. Um, And we definitely did. There was like a lot of difficult discussions being had, but people seemed like super receptive and super into like the fact that we need to talk about changes. Yeah. Yeah, I think... um just because you're asked to speak on a particular issue doesn't mean that you're aligned with it. So Mm. um, I was interested in how optimistic you were about um, moving forward from the Me Too movement, but it it sounds like it was a kind of fruitful conversation. Absolutely. Like the optimism, I think, like the tone in the room was definitely like what has happened is really cool, but what are we doing next? Mm. Like what comes after you know, this public calling out, like the hashtag, hashtag divism, I guess is the word. Um, I've never heard of that. Yeah. 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 Um, Kind of. I've heard of clicktivism. Yeah, exactly. Like that kind of thing of like, once we like, you know, use our 140 character, 280 character (laughs) tweet, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. you're very behind the times. Oh, you have a really good Twitter as well. I wanted to add that in. (laughs) (laughs) Sidebar. Um, But like outside of, you know, sending tweets and getting some, you know, likes for that, what comes next? How do we actually engage with processes of change, with structures? And specifically with that event was like dealing with arts organisations. How can people use like funding and money and the fact that they have like HR departments and admin staff to actually help um, help heal and help people actually come to better places. Yeah, one of my personal takeaways from it, I think, was when I saw um, dancer and choreographer Amrita mm. Heppy talk about mm. the importance of hiring. At the end, she kind of talked about the importance of hiring people with emotional intelligence. And I know that's a yeah. difficult thing to kind of measure, mm. but I think it was one of those things that I kind of intuit- intuitively have that feeling towards working with people that I surround myself by. I mean, someone for me can be an incredible worker or, you know, be really good at their craft or what they do. But I think unless they have that emotional intelligence, I struggle to work with Mm. people. Mm. Um, But she kind of talked about the necessity of that. And I guess it's hard because different people have different levels of what they identify in other people as well. But I think vocalising something like that was really interesting for me. And I was wondering if you had any takeaways or was there any kind of action or, uh, I guess strategies that you kind of thought were something interesting to like move the conversation forward? The two things that came out of it really for me was a lot of people and like my personal take in all of this is very much wound up in this but a lot of people use the term compassion to talk about how we're approaching these things and approaching healing with compassion, approaching like the people who've been accused with things with compassion and actually um, providing them with resources and tools as well and approaching the entire situation from a compassionate perspective as the thing that will actually uh, be healing and actually cause change. And as soon as we actually, um, yeah, approach it on a a footing of trying to work through to solutions is a really positive thing. And the other thing that came out of it was one of the, we kind of split off into small groups afterwards and had some discussions. And one of the small groups had a... um, had a woman in talking about how she was doing, how she did kind of like aftercare for performers. Um, and I think it was specifically um, theatrical performers and opera performers, but like actually used like, you know, a kink aftercare model to go away. And like, you know, if someone does a sex scene on stage, to then come away backstage and give everyone space and time and to wind down and to talk through those feelings. And in the same way that like a kink model would be like, we're going to like process what's happened. We're going to talk about our positive and negative feelings. We're going to try and, yeah, have a, a really productive conversation about like what was harmful then, what was positive, what do we need to you know, take some time about, and actually applying that to a performance model. And so, like in the arts, there's a lot of things that are emotionally intensive and that are gonna be uh, harmful in certain ways for certain people, especially as soon as we you know take into account histories, like abuse histories and contexts. And so having roles and having people specifically set aside to be like, how how do we feel about this? Let's work through this process. I think is actually a really fascinating idea there's obviously people doing it currently but I don't think enough and that's a really cool role yeah I've never heard of that before but it sounds like a really great process and Mm. kind of um, policy to have in place especially for some of those really challenging and that's one of the things that came up for me as well was that kind of balance of how do you use platforms in the arts to talk about things that are that are kind of fluid and maybe not necessarily within the normal constructs of what you are able to talk about in a workplace. You know, like arts does bring up all of this very poetic stuff around very challenging and sometimes, Mm. uh, you know, stuff that can be quite harmful. How do you do that safely, essentially, I think was one of the things that I found 
really interesting. Yeah, I was at a um, a lecture the other day talking about Ron Athey, I think it was, and like performance art in general. And one of the questions to this lecturer was about care and how queer bodies are cared for if their if their performance is so bodily. And the lecturer, without like calling people out, was like <laughs> nothing. Like there was no. It, I don't even think they properly understood the question. And to be honest, I hadn't even thought about it before for sure and so I think it it seems so obvious that it would be something to take into consideration but do you think that conversation is becoming more into the mainstream I think so I mean I hope so yeah Uh, one of the other things that I do um is I'm really uh interested in sexual health advocacy especially for like queer people um and like queer sexual health and that's another area where the conversations we're having every day are around sex around bodies around like really intimate private parts of ourselves and our lives and how to put those out in public and deal with them in a professional setting in a way that is actually caring and kind like we're talking about specifically um, as queers doing queer health we're talking about our own bodies and our own sex lives and how we kind of balance that professional personal line is a really difficult line but people have always been creating those tools because we need to and I think it's exactly the same for the arts is we're there we're creating the arts we're using our bodies um the conversations have to follow and they do yeah, one of your other uh, identifiers is sexual health nerd, which I thought was really cool. Totally. Yeah. Katie and I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I w- was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about the research and writing you've been doing related to the female contraceptive pill. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I wrote an essay um, that came out a few weeks ago about the history of the oral contraceptive pill. Um, and basically it started off as just like, a, oh, you know, what's what's the deal with this? And kind of started doing research and was like, oh, holy, holy crap, this is <laughs> so intense. Um, and yeah, the history of it is just really brutal and based around doctors doing all kinds of stuff without patients' consent and trials on people who didn't know they were in trials. And um, Yeah, it wasn't one of the things like women are such good guinea pigs because they clean their cages totally. and stuff. It's like, oh, Yeah, God. like that uh, from a, um, a hearing in the Senate in the US in the 70s by a protester named um, Alice Wolfson um, who wasn't given time to actually speak on stage and so like made a comment basically being like women like clean their own cages and pay their oh. own medical bills. Like mm. it's mm. really intense um, and kind of one of the outcomes of the essay was basically like the pill itself is not like bad like you know air quotes bad but kind of the story around it and the way that society uh, frames it can be um Mm. which i think applies to a lot of sexual health and medicine and in fact a lot of these conversations like the way the individual ways we talk about you know i think it comes back to call out culture call out culture is not in and of itself bad but the way it can be used can be bad when we Mm. don't actually talk about what the next step is, what the outcomes are, how it harms people, you know, one year, 10 years down the line. Mm. Like it all comes down to what is the bigger picture and how are we actually tackling the bigger picture as um, as activists and, yeah, as as feminists. Mm. Liz, you've uh, requested a song for us today. Can you tell <laughs> us a little bit about your song request? Totally. Um, so I just, I really love this artist. I don't stop talking about him to anyone who'll listen. Um, he's a guy named Bruce Coburn. He's Canadian. He's kind of a folk legend over there. Um, I'm just really glad that, you know, he's getting some radio airtime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one's called Incandescent Blue. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. Stick around because we'll be chatting more to Liz Duckchong about the Love Letters podcast mm. and, and amongst other things up next.
You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and we're joined now by Liz Duckchon. We've been chatting a little bit about your um, the panel that you were recently on at the mm. Opera House, um, but we wanted to ask about a crikey article that you wrote recently about how bureaucratic inertia is failing non-binary people. And I was wondering, for those without access to crikey, um, if you could talk a little bit about that. Totally. Um, so just. Like, kind of some background on that is that Australia has had for quite a while now the ability to have an X marker as your legal gender marker, rather than, like, an M or an F, like, passport, ID documents, birth certificates and stuff like that. Um, And, like, a few years ago, um, yeah, in uh, 2013, there were some guidelines released at a federal level being like, hey, federal, like, government bodies kind of have to recognise them. Like, they legally exist. We really need to, you know, actually let them in our systems, add them to our databases, um, and, you know, kind of gave them 12 months to do that. Or I think three years kind of was, like, the final thing. Um, anyway, so it's, like, probably, like, what is it, five years later? I can't really do maths, but five mm. years later, and that's still not the case. <laughs> that's the thing. I was, like, just mentally being, like, how many years ago was that? But <laughs> I still can't believe it's 2018. That mm. sounds like a fake number. It does. It yeah. sounds like a not real. I'm, like, yeah, it sounds like a science fiction film. Exactly. Like, 2018. Totally, yeah. <laughs> um, it's not real. <laughs> But what is real, amazing, <laughs> is the discrimination um, against people with X markers. Um, and yeah, so like government organizations like Centrelink, um, Medicare is a big one. Even like border security has like some things for them and other things not. And so there's just a lot of stuff that isn't like isn't there yet, isn't at like a standard which should be appropriate. Um, and so the article is really just saying, here's a bunch of things that is that that are not there yet um, and they need to catch up and I'm really hoping to do some more work with Crikey on like pointing out specific issues and going in depth into like 
why they haven't done it. Like, you know, a few mm. years ago, um, I think it was Medicare was just like, you know, we're so excited to support people with um, X markers, except they like haven't done anything. So kind of yeah. looking at that. And it has real world consequences. Like Absolutely. it's not like it's just a platitude. It's, you can't get Centrelink support. Like you can't pay your bills if you, totally. if it, like, wasn't there something to do with Oz study? Yeah, yeah. They're like all these kinds of things are super affected by it. Like, obviously, Centrelink is, like, a bit of a stickler for getting details correct. But if your details aren't legally correct, mm. then, like, there's a quote in the article from one of the folk I interviewed basically being, like, not it's not just on a personal identity level, but, like, am I committing fraud? Like, that's, like, are they? Because mm-hmm. legally they don't match up, but they also can't. And so it's a really grey area of, um, like, none of this stuff has been contested yet, but it could be a real problem. Mm. Uh I don't know if you ever sleep, Liz, because you <laughs> you also Rarely. run two podcasts and just released an EP. But I, I'm a little bit obsessed with uh, love song dedications on the radio, so <laughs> I'm really interested in your Love Letters podcast, which is a collection of uh, short love letters read to the listener. Can you tell us a bit about it? For sure. Um, it just basically started because I didn't have a diary, um, and so like definitely the first kind of dozen letters are deeply like just me dealing with my own personal issues but after that people actually started submitting letters um, and I started writing some fiction and it's actually become a really nice place of like people will send stuff that like they're feeling and thinking and having emotions about and I just kind of read it out they're generally like three to five minutes long they're very simple um, but it's just like I don't know I'm a big fan of um, like positivity and intimacy in like podcasting and radio and I feel like there isn't enough of it so I kind of wanted to create yeah a space where we can just have some nice warm fuzzy feelings in a podcast like there's so many podcasts about like death and murder and politics (laughs) there is and it makes you like if you listen to it on the way to work you feel terrible by the time you get there and like sometimes I'm like hi everyone (laughs) oh my god the world is so like nuns are killing people yeah but do you find it helpful I I thought it was interesting ages ago Maggie Nelson was talking about how there's like no catharsis in the Mm. work that she does Mm. and then when Roxane Gay came to Sydney she just published Hunger I think yeah and like we were interested in what she um sorry there's also fruit flies in the studio (laughs) um whether there was like if it uh, it's like important to tell those stories but like the emotional toll that it takes on you as a writer or as a podcaster Mm. Did you, I wonder how you feel about that. Like, did you find it cathartic to Definitely. any initial like, episodes? I think there's also, there's an initial rush of catharsis, which is slowly replaced by like questioning your motives and figuring that out. So I think there's a balance of, and like, I, I don't know, mine's a digital podcast that makes some money. I can take it down. Like I absolutely feel for people like, you know, Maggie Nelson and Roxanne gave like published a best-selling book that's mm-hmm. like now in every bookstore in the world being mm-hmm. like, Ooh, that's a bit, that's actually a bit personal. Yeah. Um, but no, there definitely, I think is a, a joy in the shared experience. And I think especially because the podcast has people write in their own letters that I have no context to. And I have like people have like written in like breakup letters and letters to friends and like uh, missed connections and stuff. And I'm just reading them out, trying to embody the voice with, uh, with some emotion, but there's so many stories there that I think have meaning to people in such different ways. And I know, you know I've written about my own personal life on the podcast in very kind of veiled ways. And so what people are getting out of that is totally different. So it is a personal catharsis, but I think there's also a group catharsis. Yeah, it's such an interesting process for it to be... Like, I wonder if you're reading them out as the kind of middle step in between them mm. actually being sent or whether mm. they're never sent or whether, you know, like whether you kind of reading them and uh, vocalising them brings some more kind of meaning to rather than just writing them and keeping them in totally. a diary you're kind of yeah. it's it's sharing but you're not sharing it with the person that mm-hmm. it's yeah. intended to Aimed go down. to yeah like, i recently released an episode which was somebody like um kind of figuring out in their head whether or not it was an appropriate time to like propose to someone and like it could have been fiction it could have been non-fiction but like it was this 
beautiful little thing of like, is it, are we ready? How does this, like, it's so cute. Um, and if that is somebody's like sending that to someone and having it in the world is part of that process, that's amazing. And yeah. if not, it's also just really cool. Yeah. <laughs> and what's your other podcast about? Uh, my other podcast is called Let's Do It. I do it with my mate Alex and it's kind of like a sex ed and sexual health podcast. Um, and like they're a sexual health nurse and I'm, as you like, as we said earlier, a nerd. Um, <laughs> and so we kind of just, pick a subject every week like so far we've done like um consent politics we've done like um dating as trans people we've done um ah, can't even think of what we've done that's all buzzing around in my head but like a lot of different subjects you know we're doing one soon on like specifically like trans health and how to like go to doctors as trans people um and take questions from our audience and like answer listener questions it's a really cool space um and just trying to keep it as like queer positive and open as possible and yeah and these, all of the links to them are on your website, They right? are all Great. on my website, yeah. <laughs> and even though you are a sexual health nerd, are you finding that you're learning things from the process? Always, yeah. yeah. No, there's always a process of Do learning. Do you have any... I'm about as enthusiastic about sexual health as you are about love song dedication, <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> I would love to know what you, like, if you have any interesting finds. Interesting finds. Um, there's just always the unexpected stuff around, like, what... I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm really sorry, but um, we've definitely gotten some like like the last episode we did um with a friend of ours, Kaya Wilson, um about dating as a trans person. Um, we got a bunch of really complicated questions around like the specific interplay of like cis and trans people dating and people with different knowledge bases and being able to ask certain questions and like they re- like there were some questions to wrestle with. They mm. were really um really intense and that's really fun. Yeah, and it sounds like you're probably doing it right then. If you're wrestling with them, you're not just like, (laughs) obviously. (laughs) Well, I think it's the best kind of uh, creating kind of podcasts or writing as well as when you do the research and then you learn new things. Well, recently we got an email saying, hey, you know, you said this thing in this episode and I had some feelings about it and maybe like it's not as good as possible. And like the next episode we do, we're going to like, we want to read it out and we want to respond to it. Like the idea that people are actually saying, hey, you're not doing good enough is the best. Yeah. Mm. Like that's really what we want to be getting from people. Well, Mm. I think it becomes a conversation then rather than a transmission of knowledge Mm. that is kind of done and sorted and packaged, you know. Uh, Liz, thank you so much for coming in thank you to for chat to us me. this morning. It's, it's really been great. Awesome. We'll just pop a link to your website, I think, on our on our agenda awesome. show page so that everyone can access all of the incredible writing and podcasting <laughs> and projects and everything that you have oh, done. Oh, yeah, and you're a roadie Oh, as yeah, well. we forgot <laughs> to ask. You, you used to be a roadie? Can a you? little bit, yeah. Back, back at five, ten years ago, I did a, a bit of roadieing. Um, not really enough to put on a resume, but definitely enough to put in a website. <laughs> <by it. laughs> Fantastic. Well, we'll put all of that up on the Agenda Show page. Uh, we're going to leave you with this new track from Gabriella Cohen. It's called Baby. Uh, also, there's maybe like uh, five minutes left to text in your vote on whether celebrities should be politicians. We got a text in before it said Cynthia Nixon's suitability to run New York would be best assessed on the policies she's putting forward. They all look pretty good. If she can use her celebrity status to help cut through a media that rarely addresses policies in a celebrity obsessed culture, then good on her. The same criteria should apply for any other celebrity or any person who runs for public office. Yeah, I think I maybe spoke too soon and judged <laughs> Cynthia Nixon too quickly. Um, we didn't talk about the erasure of her queer No, we didn't. Identity, but maybe... Maybe next time. Maybe if she becomes governor, we can do a full episode on Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon. Nixon. Yeah. See, we're, we're learning in real time too. <laughs> <laughs> this one is uh, Baby by Gabriella Cohen. You've been listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. When I see you You see me too
forget 